0: church in and through our lives and through your church across the globe. And God, tonight, as we discuss things from the book of Obadiah, God, we pray that you would show us more of yourself, show us more of your heart. And God, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, good evening. I want to tell you a story about a woman named Joy. Joy was a uh, a faithful Christian woman, wife and mother. And Joy, when her and her husband got to their new church and she had a moment to express her heart to her new pastor and tell him about some of the things that were going on in her life, she was shocked at his words in response. And the reason that she was shocked is because this was the first time in the first church and the first pastor that had actually responded to her with anything other than the problem is you, and you need to submit more. You see, Joy and her husband had been moving from church to church for some time over the years, and, and they never could find a place where they fit because the things that were going on at home in their marriage and in their, in their family were so volatile and so violent and so destructive that they could never find a place to belong because every time they got close to anyone, Her husband rejected the counsel of one of their friends or a pastor, or even worse, they blamed her for what was happening. You see, Joy had been a a victim of physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse for many years, and she had many times trusted her heart and her story to believers that she thought cared for her, and their words were often unhelpful, to say the least. See, when we think about violence, we, we tend to think about terrorist attacks, and rightfully so, right? When we think about violence, we tend to think about the shootings at Kroger and Meyer and rightfully so. But oftentimes, we miss the ways that violence is so prevalent in our day-to-day lives and in our families and our relationships that we, it, it's become normal for us. You see, we, we, we have misunderstood violence to just be the extreme things that, that impact the world and we miss some of the ways that violence have impacted our own lives because violence is so prevalent in our relationships, in our homes, in our churches that we find ourselves in a place where it's just the norm and we just keep going and we just expect everything to stay the same way that it is and we don't really expect that there's going to be change. Because in a broken Genesis 3 world, violence is all too normal. And the book of Obadiah and God's word as a whole has much to say about the topic of violence. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15 in the book of Obadiah. So I hope you'll join me in reading those right now. Here's what we read in Obadiah's vision. And remember, Obadiah has this vision about... Edom, uh, and, and we talked last week about how Edom and Israel's stories go all the way back to Jacob and Esau, right, in the book of Genesis. And so these are the people groups that descend from them, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 10 here. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin, and do not boast in the day of their distress." Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. And do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress so Obadiah has something to teach us about violence here. The Lord has something to say to us about what violence looks like. And there's a lot of things that I think we can learn from Edom's violence against Jacob or against Israel that can be very applicable to our lives and our relationships. And, and just to kind of set the stage, you know, maybe you don't think that you have seen violence. Maybe you don't think that you've experienced violence. And so maybe just the idea of talking about violence isn't really that impactful for you. I just want to give you a couple of statistics that should show you why this should be an important topic to understand biblically, to understand what violence is, and to understand the way it impacts people's lives. Because the reality is, is that one in four women experience some form of domestic violence in their homes at some point in life. One in four women, 25% of women. And that's no less true in the church And the the same statistic applies for sexual abuse as well. One in four women, one in six men at some point in life experience that kind of violence in their life. And so here's the sobering reality for us. Is that even though there's few of us in this room tonight, there are some of us who have experienced violence. And if we're to be Christians who love God and love one another well, then we need to understand what the Bible has to say on this topic and how we can learn from the book of Obadiah what violence looks like so that when we see it, we notice it. And then we need to understand how the gospel meets us in the midst of such dark places. And so the first thing we have to ask is, is what does violence look like? Well, I think in verse 10, we see firstly that violence has serious and eternal consequences. It says, because of the violence that was done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off, when? Forever. Violence has an eternal consequence, a consequence that lasts. And so what is violence? Well, violence, I think, can be biblically defined as an unjustified attack on the image of God in a person or a group of people that is carried out either overtly or covertly for the purpose of establishing power and control. So on Sundays, we've been talking about the image of God, right, in the book of Genesis and how important that is and how what the Bible teaches us is that each and every one of us has inherent value, dignity, and worth. And then later on in the book of Genesis, what we're going to see is that in Genesis 9, the first time that uh, what we would call the death penalty is installed, uh, this idea that a life for a life, the idea there is, is Genesis 9, 6. Here's how it's explained. Here's what it says. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the reason. For God made man in his own image. And so the reason that violence is such a grievous act of sin against not only a human being but against God is because God has made human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. We were made to belong to him, to honor him, to represent him to the world. And whenever there is violence done against one of his people, one of his creatures, one of his sons or daughters, it's a serious act deserving of a serious and eternal consequence and so when we think about violence in in our own lives you know um, right here in the book of Obadiah, we see this, this violence between these, these peoples, right? Where Babylon has come in and they have taken over Jerusalem and they have taken over the people of Israel. And Edom has given help, at least in a passive way, right? So maybe, maybe they weren't actively involved in the siege of the city or, or anything like that. But they passively agreed and went along with and assisted in some ways. And we see this violence between people groups. But in our lives, you know, violence lands in very personal ways. And we think of these patterns of violence that that our our culture and and I think rightfully sometimes would describe as what we would call abuse, right? Which could be defined as a, a pattern of coercive or controlling behavior that results in the debilitation or the diminishment of those the behavior is directed towards. So it has an impact on someone made in God's image. Violence matters and is so important because it debilitates, it diminishes, it it hinders people from living the life that God has called them to because it's so damaging and destructive. And then we have to ask, okay, so if if this is what violence is, if it debilitates and diminishes, and if it's an attack on the image of God, whether that's in an individual setting or the setting of a people group like this, um, we have to ask, who, who commits violence most often? Look at what verse 10 says there, at least in this circumstance we see violence was done by someone very close because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, right? And, and just, like, just like Jacob, just like Israel experienced violence at the hands of a brother, of a people group that was meant to be close, that they were family, their, their lineage went back to Jacob and Esau, right? And so they had a long family history, They were extended family. See, we experience violence most often in a family context as well. Um, The ways that we experience violence in our own lives are are most often with the people that we love and trust the most. That's why 25% of women experience domestic violence. They experience violence in their home with the people they're closest to. And it's no different for the people of Israel, someone, a people group that they are close to, that they're related to, is the one that's carrying out this grievous act against them. And Babylon is the one ultimately responsible, right? But then uh, we see that they, the Edomites, the, the, that's not the right word, Edom, the people of Edom were involved in this, at least in a passive and supportive way. That's what we're going to see here in just a moment. But it says that shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So what is shame? Shame is this idea of dishonor that lasts. There's this idea of lasting consequence and punishment here, that violence brings about this lasting thing that will end up bringing dishonor that lasts. Edom is going to be wiped from the face of the earth as a people group. As a people, Edom is not going to continue to exist, God says, because of the violence they've been a part of. And so God sees this as a very serious offense, and, and I think one of the things that we can gain from the book of Obadiah is that Obadiah prepares us for this idea that those closest to us might sin in a similar way, that they might sin against us or a loved one with an act of violence of some kind. That Obadiah gives us hope as we see God walking his people Israel through an experience of this kind of violence, it gives us hope in our personal lives as well as we experience sin in a fallen, broken world, as we experience violence in our own lives. It gives us hope that even when everything around us looks dark and everything around us is painful, we know that there is a God who is reigning and ruling from his throne like we talked on Sunday, and he is sovereign over it all. And that even the violence we experience in this life does not escape for the Christian the all of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purposes, for those who love God. Even violence does not escape God's sovereignty. Even violence does not escape his good hand and his good providence in our lives, how he can turn even the most evil things that we experience in life and somehow work them for his own glory and our good. We see, secondly, that violence can be passive and apathetic just like it can be aggressive and passionate. So look at verse 11 with me. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, God says, you were like one of them, So like the Babylonians who are actually carrying out this passionate, aggressive act of violence where they're sieging these cities and they're taking control, you're standing aloof, you're doing nothing, your passivity and your apathy is just as sinful and just as wicked as that is. So friends, in our own lives, our passivity and our apathy similarly sometimes are just as wicked as if we were passionately engaging in an act of violence. Our unwillingness to do anything. Our standing aloof, our standing to the side and watching as things happen and not being willing to enter in. You see, it... Violence can be passive and apathetic, and it, it can be verbal, and it's rooted in pride. In verse 12 we see, But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin, and do not boast in the day of distress. And so gloating over, rejoicing over, boasting in the distress of others, this idea that violence is carried out through words as well as actions. Right, that's the kind of idea we see in verse twelve. The, the the people of Edom weren't actually necessarily carrying out these acts of violence, but they were standing aloof and they were saying things about them. Right, they had words to say about this. They had words in which they were gloating over what was happening to their brothers. They were rejoicing over their uh, misfortune. They were boasting in the day of their distress. That, that word boast there in the ESV, if you look at the footnote, it says in the Hebrew, uh, the idea is, do not enlarge your mouth. So the idea here is that they were speaking lots of words and prideful words, words rude and pride. Doug talked last week about how the problem with the people of Edom was their pride, right? And how it's our problem as well. That pride is at the root of sin. Pride is at the heart of evil. Pride is at the heart of violence. And we see this kind of verbal violence so that the violence or, or even the pattern of violence that we might describe as, as abuse in someone's life is, doesn't just have to be physical. When we think about the idea of violence, it's not biblically just physical action. Look with me at some of these verses in Proverbs. Proverbs ten eleven: The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. See, words matter, biblically. Words are just as capable of violence and sin as physical actions are. And standing aloof or participating in verbal ways are just as wicked before God as the physical acts of violence that the Babylonians were doing were. And so God says, you were like one of them. You were just like them. You were just like them by standing and being passive or by, uh, by gloating over what was happening to them. You were just like them. You were participating in the violence, and I'm holding you accountable for it. So violence can be verbal, and it's also rooted in pride. You know, there's, this, there's this prideful belief at the heart of all violence that says, I am better than you. I am more important than you. It's this distortion of our belief about what God's image means, See, we believe it, it, when we engage in violence, when we engage, whether it's verbal words or, or passive actions, passive aggression, or, or whether it's actual physical aggressive violence, whatever it looks like, the problem is we're believing something about ourselves, we're believing something about God, and we're believing something about the person that we're acting against. What we're believing about ourselves is that we're important, we're made in God's image, That that even we're superior to the person we're interacting with. I mean, this this is at the heart of so many sins, right? This is at the heart of racism, right? This idea that I'm more important than you, I'm better than you. There's something about me inherently that is superior to you. That's what racism is rooted in, is pride. That's what sin is rooted in, is pride. That's what violence of all kinds is rooted in, is pride. This is why they gloat and rejoice and boast in the misfortune of their brothers and their ruin and distress. They, they do these things because they are prideful. As we read last week, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rock and your lofty dwellings who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They believe they're untouchable. I believe they're sitting in the mountains above everybody else, invincible and important. Another proverb that gives us some help here, it says, A man who bears false witness, so, you know, lying with his words against his neighbor, is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day like vinegar on Soda, am I reading that right? Vinegar and soda. Man, I thought I was reading it wrong. It's like, man, typo. How the you know? Anyway, so so the idea here is that there's there's one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Okay, so uh, in my discussions with other pastors and counselors, and even in some of my experiences, I have heard of of men who have abusive tendencies laughing and whistling and even singing while their wife or children are in distress. After they've had some kind of argument or there's been physical violence or something, uh, some of these men will just go on about the rest of their day like nothing has happened. Singing songs to those with a heavy heart. Having joy in the despair of others. This is the idea, this is what violence does. This is what pride does. When whenever a people engages in violence like this, they they gloat over the misfortune of others, they rejoice in their ruin, they boast in the day of their distress. They sing songs to those with heavy hearts. And fourthly, we see that violence takes advantage of the weak and the vulnerable in verse 13. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity, and do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So you see, there, the 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 perpetrators of this violence they enter the gate of God's people, right? So the gate would have made you think it would make us think about the city, right? And how you would enter a city in the ancient world through the gate, right? And whenever the Babylonians have conquered Israel, whenever they have subjugated them underneath their control, Edom, the people of Edom, see an opportunity when Israel is weak, to enter in and take from them. To take from the vulnerable, to take from the weak. And this is what the violent do. They take from those who are in a weak position, who are vulnerable. They they enter in and they they loot their lives. They find pleasure in the pain, in the calamity of the victims of the violence. They, see, here's the reality, just statistically. One in four women versus one in nine men experience physical domestic violence. So, the, And, and here's, here's just the reality. It's not saying anything about superiority or inferiority of men and women. It's just saying that men generally are, are bigger and stronger. And so less often are they victims of physical violence than women and children. And, and the statistics show that. They demonstrate that. That the weak and vulnerable are those who are preyed upon by those who are violent that the weak and vulnerable are taken advantage of. Just like the people of Israel are here, when they're at their weakest moment, when they're vulnerable, Edom sees an opportunity to take advantage. And this is the same thing that violent people do. Not just violent people groups, but violent individuals do this as well, where they see the weak and vulnerable and they see an opportunity. And so violence takes advantage of the weak and vulnerable. And then fifthly, we see that violence attempts to control victims and prevent their escape. So look with me at verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So the idea here is that there are people in Israel who are trying to escape. They're running. They're fleeing and the people of Edom, seeing them flee the Babylonians, they're standing at the crossroads. They're standing in their way on the road to prevent their escape. And they're capturing them and sending them back to captivity for their own gain. And, and, and this is what violence does. We, the, violent people attempt to control the victims of the violence. They attempt to prevent escape not just in situations of war or battle like this, but in personal and familial contexts as well. You know, uh, Pastor Chris Moles, who does a lot of work with uh, violence-related issues and, and counseling, he, he tells the story of an abusive husband who literally stood behind the car when his wife was trying to flee to keep her from going anywhere. And, by the way, she tried to run him over because she was afraid and guess who got slapped on the wrist legally? It wasn't him. It wasn't the man she'd been living in fear of for years. It was her. She got in trouble and had to be sent to a, a batter's intervention group because she tried to run him over with the car to escape his wrath. And, and he tells another story of, of a guy who... Who would take a piece of chalk and go out behind his wife's car every morning and draw lines underneath the tires so that he could know when he got back whether she'd left or not? See, violence has this desire for control and power that does not let go, this desire to be king. So that sinful, selfish desire that we all have in our hearts that we have to fight against that says i 'm what 's most important. I need to be king in life and and people need to serve me it 's escalated when there 's violence it 's dominating it 's life dominating and and there 's this prevention of the people who are underneath it from, to try and keep them from escaping it to try and keep them under control and just this is what we see here in verse fourteen where The people of Edom are trying to keep the people of Israel underneath this environment of violence. They're trying to send them back to the Babylonians who have conquered them. And they're literally standing in their way on the road, preventing their escape, just like the man who draws a line on the ground behind his wife's vehicle tires or who stands in the way to try to keep her from escaping. This is the kind of picture we have with violence. And so violence is pretty bad, right? Like, this is wicked. This is evil. This is destructive. And and if we just look at this, it seems despairing. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 15. So God says all these judgments are going to come on the people of Edom. Because of their violence, which we've looked at, what violence looks like, with Edom and then in personal lives as well, and here's what he says. So he's he's saying, you better stop gloating, you better stop doing these things, you better turn from this, for the day of the Lord is near, upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is why we have hope when we look around and we see violence, when we experience violence, when we look at what God is doing in his redemptive plan. We see a God who, even when we see everything that's broken and evil and wicked around us, who's still in control and who promises that that is temporary and that, Judgment and justice will be done. See, violence is temporary, and it will be judged. And and this is, God has demonstrated this to us on the cross. The cross is the reason for our hope. The cross is the reason that we believe God's care for us. The cross is the reason that we have hope for forgiveness if we have oppressed someone or committed an act of violence and the reason that if violence has been done against us, we have hope as well because Jesus, the God who became a man, was willing to enter into our pain and brokenness and suffer not just with us but for us. On the cross, we see a man who is willing to become the victim of violence so that one day we might know lasting freedom and joy and peace. And the cross isn't just sufficient for the victim of violence, right? It's not just sufficient for people like the Israelites who needed hope of a God who cared. But it's sufficient for those who do evil. It's an extension of an offer of hope and change and forgiveness and transformation. See, the the cross is where the innocent one died for the guilty one. And that's why we have hope. Because our God doesn't just see violence and stand far off. He promises judgment in the future, and he exercises judgment on the cross as well. And in Jesus' death, we have hope whether we're sinner or suffer, because we have the God who identifies with us in our suffering and the God who dies for us because of our sin. And so I hope that whatever you walk through in life, you look to the cross and see the king exalted on it who promises that there is a day coming and that that day is near when violence will end and judgment and justice will be had, and every tear will be wiped from your eye because he's our only hope. Would you pray with me? God, we are in such desperate need of you. In the midst of a world and lives that are so often broken by sin and evil, God, we humble ourselves before you. We ask that you would keep us humble before you and that you would help us to see your hand at work even in the midst of the mess. God, would you help us to know lasting peace and joy in you because of your son and whose glorious and awesome name we pray.